As Taylor read our text this morning, we pick back up our Romans series. Before missions conference last weekend, we we spent six weeks going through chapters one and two. We didn't take all of chapter one. We did take all of chapter two. We started chapter one around verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter two, looking at sin in two categories from three directions, because this is our series. We're talking about why the doctrine of sin matters. And now we take questions. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 is a spate of questions, Paul answering questions with questions, and he seems a little ticked about it. That is the tone of the passage. By way of ever so brief review, Taylor mentioned it in communion. We looked at sin in two categories, that is unrighteousness, roughly chapter 1, self-righteousness, roughly chapter 2, and the three directions were in each uh, category against God unrighteousness and self-righteousness against God, against oneself, and against others. Putting sin into categories like that was not meant to be compartmentalization. All sin is against God, and all have sinned. In fact, chapter 3 has the very famous statement in Romans, we'll come to it later in verse 23, that says just that, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And something else that Taylor said in communion that's, that's worth continuing to think about, the weight of that knowledge can lead us to despair, as Taylor rightly said. And I think of something that a professor named Lewis Smeads, now with the Lord, he wrote years ago in one of his books. He said that the gospel not only tells us how bad human pride is, it also, it also tells us how bad human despair is. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is doubling down on this point. He was so carefully putting together in chapters 1 and 2 that God's judgment is universal. And no one, I mean no one, is exempt because no one is without sin. And yet in God's gracious estimation of the world as it is and us in it, not only did God know we needed him, to die for us in the person of his son, but God also knew we need to know that we are worth that to him. And so he is honest with us about our sin. This is the gospel. But he's also keeping us from despairing of ourselves over it. And this is also the gospel. So Paul has some really hard words here for people who want to argue with his preaching of the gospel But we argue with the gospel too. We may not argue the same way that he's addressing in this passage, but we argue with the gospel when we think of our depravity more than our renewal. We argue with the gospel when we think of our sin more than his grace. And the gospel confronts that despairing over ourselves as much as it confronts pride in oneself. And I think it's important we establish this right off the bat because of the nature of this text before us being confrontational. Paul is confronting a certain kind of argument against the gospel he preached. And again, this may not be the way you and I argue with the gospel, but we have our ways of arguing with the gracious love of God applied to us every time we focus on our depravity to the exclusion of his ongoing renewal of us in Christ. We're arguing with the gospel. Every time we despair over ourselves, we're arguing with the gospel. And I say this because I'm sensitive to the fact that there are so many of us in this room that are hurting over one thing or another in our lives. And due to that, we don't feel 
confidence before God. You say, pride in myself, that's not my problem. My problem is I can't bring myself to believe God is as good as, to me as he says he is. What you've got to know, and maybe for the first time in here this morning, if you don't already know, is the gospel confronts that despair over ourselves as much as it confronts unchecked pride in oneself. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul answers a fractured logic. The last section of chapter 3 is very familiar, right? Right around verse 21 to verse 31 of Romans 3, well-trafficked part of this book. Verse 23 is already mentioned. We all fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned. But the first eight verses that we're looking at in this chapter, our text today, not so well-trafficked. Why? It's a bunch of questions aimed at three ways, at least three ways, that Jewish objectors, primarily Jewish objectors, misconstrued Paul's preaching of the gospel. Remember, the gospel went first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and as it did, objections were raised by both groups, and early on here in chapter 3, he's dealing with more Jewish-flavored objections and broken logic, but Gentiles have our own objections and broken logic as well. You ever been at a presentation where they open it up for questions and someone goes to the microphone and wants to argue with the speaker? I've actually been the speaker who's had this happen. And what they argue, it, you can just tell in the room, you can watch people's body English, it's just not of interest to anybody. I mean, this poor guy or, or woman has gone to the mic to argue with the speaker, and what, they, what they're hung up about, what they're interested in, it's just not of any interest to anybody. If when Taylor was reading this passage, you felt some of that, that's okay. Because Romans 3, it feels in some ways like that Q&A where the speaker is having to take on something the rest of us really aren't that beat up about or interested in. When Albert Moeller, named a lot of you know, when he became president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where a brother-in-law of mine got his training, because Moeller was a theological conservative, he was opposed by students who did not want to see Southern uh, refashioned in that mold and direction. And this is going back uh, some 20-some-odd years now when he became president. The young Albert Moeller, I remember hearing a a, a recording, a Q&A, a friend of mine who went to that seminary said, let me play this for you, sitting in his living room. And it's a Q&A of an early uh, chapel time where the students could come to the mic and, and all these students that were opposing Moeller, they line up and this one student, under the guise of having a question, began to unfurl this long, drawn out, pretty ridiculous set of assertions and objections to Moeller and they were like this, as a spiritual man, I have these problems with you, as a biblical man, etc. and so on, as a praying man, as a... As a as a family man, he went on and on like this. And finally, when Moeller responded, he said, well, first I have to decide which version of you I need to answer. That's what it goes like in these Q&As sometimes. Well, when you look at verses 1 and 8, let's look at it this way. Who is standing at the mic prompting this flurry of 
questions, uh, responding to questions, you know, answer, answers as, as questions within questions, response from Paul. And are we really interested? You don't know how tempted it is for a preacher to skip verses 1 through 8 from chapter 2 and just go right to verse 9. Are we really interested in, in what they want to know? Well, I don't know. Let's see. Paul is responding to three concerns. I'll give you three concerns that he's responding to in this text. The first one, and we'll come back through these. The first one is those who said that Paul's gospel preaching was dismissive of Jewishness. It was dismissive of, of Jewish ethnicity, Jewish heritage, Jewish history with God. And to that, Paul says, verse 4, by no means. It's a very strong negation. It means, may it never be. A second concern. Those who said... All right, if people are really as sinful as Paul says in his preaching that we are, then isn't it unjust of God to judge us if we can't help ourselves? If our preset is somehow sin and and we're going to make ourselves guilty before God anyway, then why would God ever expect better from us? Doesn't this seem unfair of God? Doesn't doesn't this seem even unjust of God? Again, Paul says to that verse 6, By no means. May it never be that God, the righteous judge, be unfair and inconsistent in his judgments. He can't be. And then the third concern at the mic, those who said Paul is preaching a kind of easy believism and it's morally irresponsible. A grace that encouraged sin. And if you know the book of Romans, you know he'll return to this more fully in chapter 6. And we will too when we get to that chapter later. But for now here in chapter 3, he's just dismissive of this outright. He says in verse 8, those who misconstrue gospel preaching this way are doing so willfully and not a lot of hope for change if any hope for change is held out for them. Let's take these three logical fractures and and just walk back through them. The first one, Paul was dismissive of Jewishness. If, as he says, look at the very end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 29. If, as Paul says, a Jew is one inwardly, chapter 2, verse 29, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, then chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? Or what value of circumcision. He says much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And again, he'll come back to this uh, later in chapter 9. He'll develop this idea. For now, he just leaves it here. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Strong negation, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Where is that written? Verse 4 here is quoting a piece of a piece of Psalm 51. The penitent Psalm of David in contrition for the Bathsheba affair. And chapter 3, verse 4 here, is just a piece of a piece of Psalm 51.4 that reads in full this. This is Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only. The you is God. David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Against you and you only have I sinned. Say, wait, wait a minute, David. You, you sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, spectacularly. 
And he knew he did. But he also knew that every sin is a sin against God. And so the part of that verse from David that Paul is quoting here in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged, Paul's actually turning this a little bit to say, in his context, God isn't just right in his judgments against sin, he's also right. He will show himself to be right. He will prevail when judgments go against him. That is, when sinners call into question his fairness and consistency in judging us. God will be right then too. Now there's a way that ancients in Israel did that, call into question God's um, fairness and consistency, and Paul is addressing that very directly here. But there's also a way that modern people do this. Such as in our eagerness. Modern people have a great eagerness to accept the idea that no one will be judged by God in the end. We just exclude the possibility of judgment altogether. All dogs go to heaven, and so do dog owners, right? Sorry, cat folks. I don't know what to tell you. Modern people, we know this is true. Modern people are all, it's no slam, this is just a fact. Modern people are often eager to um, accept the idea that no one will be judged by God in the end. That this doctrine of judgment for sin, this is just something fundamentalist kind of churches talk about. It's Christian scare tactic to, to get people to value morality or to go to church more. But what Paul says here, verses 3 and 4, I wonder if you believe this, what he says here in verses 3 and 4, that God's faithfulness is evidenced also in his judgment. Do you believe this? That God's faithfulness is also evidenced, God's faithfulness is also evidenced in his judgment? That he set no one up for failure then or now. We fail on our own. And yes, as verse 5 puts it, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, it does. We show in a hundred thousand ways, known and unknown to us, that we don't want God over our lives. We don't want what God wants for us. But what's news here? is that God's faithfulness is evidenced not just in his salvation, not just in his keeping of people, but also in his judging. God would not be God if he bypasses his judgments. This is Paul's point. First century Jews, who he's addressing here, expected God to judge the Gentile world. What they did not expect, what was hard for them to hear, was that they would be judged the same as the Gentile world, even though the Jews had the law of God. Remember chapter 2, verse 11? Chapter 2, verse 11, see it? For God shows no partiality. God's faithfulness is evidenced also in his judgment, not just in his redeeming, but also in his judging. The second concern now, this takes us to it. Because if you don't like to hear, as he put it in chapter 2, verse 11, God shows no partiality, that there's no grading on a curve with God, that there's no extra credit from God for being ethnically Jewish or, you know, American by birth, Southern by the grace of God, then you might object, well, 
if people are really as sinful as Paul preaches, seems unfair of God to judge us because we can't help ourselves. What about that? There are complexities in sinfulness. Complexities in this passage that defy oversimplification. But Paul is confronting one who wants to complicate the issue that God's faithfulness is also evidenced in his judgment. Ancient Jewish people, their reflex was to externalize the judgment of God. It was for the nations. It was for the Gentiles. Yeah, they knew that God had judged them in their history, but it, was, it got selective at points for them. And so they would often externalize the judgment of God is going out from us to the nations. While modern people, as I was saying, we want to extinguish altogether the idea of judgment as medieval, as incompatible with a God of love, who's basically just this projection of our, of our easygoing tolerance and moral neutrality. That's God. But what Paul says to both mindsets here, the one he's immediately aiming at in the chapter and the one that it's us over the shoulder saying, well, that sounds like it has implications for us too. We kind of think some of this too. What Paul is saying to both mindsets here is that if God doesn't judge sin, that he's not true to his, his nature. He's not true to his word. That stands, that's obvious, but he's not true to himself as God. And that says nothing in itself the fact that God judges and is consistent in his judgment, it says nothing about whether God is loving or good or trustworthy. That he shows us by what he does for us in taking our judgment for us in Christ. And good thing he does because most of us, don't we realize innately on some level we need to be taken seriously by the one in charge. People realize this. That what we do and what we think and and how we conduct our lives, it matters. It's got to matter. Our creed, our conduct in the world matters. The doctrine of judgment for sin specifies we are taken seriously by God, and furthermore, we know, we know that we should be. Even if we try to skirt this information, if we try to, to, to build some kind of fortress against it to keep it out, hide from it, I read years ago about, it, it sounded like what was being described was an episode of the Twilight Zone. Uh, I don't know that it was. In fact, you can find old Twilight Zone episodes on Netflix. I went and looked in my research for this next point. But whether this was or wasn't that show, it was old TV, black and white. And the scene, as I read of it, was a man dies and wakes up at the end of a very long line, thousands of people in this line. And he can see up at the end of the line, there's these two doors. One is marked heaven and the other is marked hell. Sounds kind of like a Twilight Zone sort of episode, doesn't it? If you're familiar with that. And there's an usher keeping the line moving. Move along, move along. And he's telling everyone, make your decision now. Don't wait until you get up there. We've got a lot of people to process and this startles the newly arrived man, average Joe American. What do you mean make my decision, he says to the usher. What, what about judgment? What happened to the last judgment? And the usher says, I don't know why people have this idea. So many of you come up here uh, with this. Uh, we don't have the staff for this. 10,000 arrivals every minute. Are you kidding me? You pick. 
You're in the line. You see the doors. Pick now. And in the sketch, the man picks hell. And not because he's expecting some eternal card-playing reunion with his buddies. Not because he considers himself a bad person who deserves the experience. He picks hell because he knows his life has to be taken seriously. There needs to be a judgment. And whoever wrote that sketch had a Romans 3 sensibility about themselves. Which we argue with. We do. We argue with it inside the church. It's not an argument just outside the church. People have with this text. We argue with it. You know, one of the ways you test your viewpoints, whether they, they, they hold water, is whether they humble you and glorify God. And by humble you, I don't mean humiliate you. God is able to humble all of us without humiliating any of us. And he's, they're not the same thing. And, and he's able to, to lift us without exalting us uh, beyond him, himself. But that's one of the ways you, you test your viewpoints. Is it humbling to me and glorifying to God? Do I have an argument really here against the judgment of God? Or do I just like to think that I'm more merciful than him? See, I deny the judgment of God because, oh, that, uh, are you more merciful than God? Really? Am I, am I uh, more right than him? When we argue with God's judgment, we are simultaneously arguing with his faithfulness. That's the connection this passage maintains. They're inseparable. Now think about it this way. You spend all your time writing a term paper. You're in college. You have this assignment. It's in your major, so you're vested. And it's a big paper, big chunk of your grade. You lose sleep working on this paper because you really want it to be good. You want to show yourself knowledgeable of the subject. You get it done. You turn it in. You're bleary-eyed. You've stayed up, you know, two or three nights working on this thing. And the next week rolls around and your professor returns the paper to you. And there's just this little red check by your name. That's it. The paper is not even crimped at the staple. It's obvious Dr. Read-Me-Not didn't read your paper. He just gave you credit for the assignment. Now, what do you think about his faithfulness to you as a professor? Think about it. You wanted him to judge your paper. You did. To interact with it because that's how you know not just that you're taken seriously by, by him as a student, but also that he is faithful to you as a professor. You want to be taken seriously by your maker as well. And God does take us seriously, which look, <laughs> this is why we're in the trouble that we're in. Because he doesn't just overlook it. We're in the trouble we're in. And need his provision for us, the cross of Christ that we've, that we've drawn into in this service because our work isn't good enough to pass his judgment. Not even a little red check by the name. But God also wants us to take him seriously. And this takes us to the third objection. And it's in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? 
As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What's going on in this logical fracture? If God's faithfulness is evidenced also in his judgment, then why not give him more to judge? It'd be like uh, turning in that paper all wrong. You know, you write a quarter of it in Klingon or something. Uh, just because, you know, the, you, the professor who reads it, well, let's give him more to grade because he's a professor. Doesn't he like grading papers? Let's give him more mistakes. Would anybody function with that logic? If God gives grace for sin, then why not more sin for more grace? That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying, Paul. This, is like a, this has become a Facebook reply to Paul, right? It's like a Facebook argument. Well, if that's what you think, then you must think this too. Oh, my goodness. How much of that goes on every day? in our society. Do we not live in a ridiculous time? This inflated, inflamed time socially where people are so overwrought with hatred for the other side, they want to pigeonhole and condemn. And you know, they they do that because it's self-securing, if not self-glorifying. There's absolutely no humility in it. I love the people who respond, in humility, I want to say, you don't know anything about humility. You're just self-glorifying. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Verse 4, the tense of that is, everyone is a liar. Paul says in verse 8, to those saying, hey, you're preaching moral irresponsibility with all your grace talk. Paul says, and again, he's going to develop this later in chapter 6. He just says it here for now. You're not even misunderstanding me. You're just misconstruing the gospel I preach. You're making the kind of argument one makes when you no longer have an argument. You just make assertions. And accusations. Not too long into my preaching career, I came across words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a longtime London preacher. His first career was as a, a medical doctor. And I've never, I've, I've never forgotten these words. A little bit of an extended quote. Stay with it. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. Why not do evil that good may increase? There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it, misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to, because you're saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose me to this misunderstanding, then I am not preaching the gospel. He goes on. If a man preaches justification by works, that you're saved by what you do, no one would ever raise this question. If a man's preaching is, want to be a Christian? Want to go to heaven? Stop committing sins. Do good works. Regularly, constantly, don't fail, keep on at it, and you will make yourself a Christian, you will reconcile yourself to God, you will go on to heaven. Obviously, Lloyd-Jones says, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Here's how he finishes. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in the way that Paul describes here in our passage and also in chapter 6 to come, then you had better examine your sermons again. 
And you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. There is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. I've always remembered his words and have, thankfully, experienced the misunderstanding and misconstruing that he describes every now and then. Well, if that's what you think, then you must think this too. It's good when I've experienced that. It's growth, and yet it's not good on the other side. For the one doing the misconstruing, verse 8 ends on a really hard note. Their condemnation is just. He's saying this to people who will not turn to the gospel he preached. They would stay in their lane of unrighteousness. They would stay in their lane of self-righteousness. And God knows who they are. You and I don't. Let's never act like we do. The last thing anybody in this church or world needs is your condemnation. Like you know who's in and who's out. This is not March Madness bracketology, last four in, first four out. Last night, Colson and I went to Oxford to watch two teams play who are both clearly out. In a postseason consideration, condemned basketball teams sitting at 12 and 19, both of them. One of them our favorite. But you know, you, you, you can think about this kind of thing sitting in a basketball game. This is all of us. God doesn't operate by bracketology. None of us get in on record. Our record stands against him even when we play well. If we go dancing with him, it is as recipients of grace. See, what's really March madness is to be here today on the first Sunday in March in this place, in this text, in a communion service, no less, and not see that you and I are the very people who would have faced the fate in verse 8, if God and grace had not turned us to him. And for many of us, myself included, the turning is ongoing. It continues. This is why the church needs the gospel also, not just the world. The church needs it. I take you back to where we started eight weeks ago now. I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Stand with me. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing a chorus together. And I'll give you the benediction after that.